I see that our brother Chuck is back in the audience, and we just want to say thank you. Thank you, God, for blessing Chuck and, and bringing Chuck back. It was a little, little sketchy there for a bit, but we're happy to have Chuck back. Uh, praise God for that. Uh, praise God for the worship band. You did a wonderful job this morning. We're just so thankful for, for the work that you do. Uh, Sunday school kids, I think they're already gone, but uh, that's part of my routine. So, Sunday school kids, if you're still here, it's time for you to go. All right. All right, this week we come to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, Genesis 18 and 19 are kind of one story, but we're only going to have time to tell half the story tonight, so, or today, so we're going to tell the story of Genesis chapter 18. And I wonder if you know that uh, one of the things that unbelievers get uh, most upset about, that, that we as Christians say, is that we know God, that we have a personal relationship with God. Uh, that, that really offends them, that they think that, that, you know, that we say we know the God of the universe. Uh, they, they might say something to you like, uh, uh, you, you're telling me that you know God, that you talk to God, that you have a personal relationship with God? Uh, and you might say something like, uh, yes, I do. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I read my Bible, when I pray, I, I speak to God. I actually speak to God. And they might say something to you like, well, wow, you must be really special that this God who created the entire universe, so you say, uh, would speak to someone such as you. And you might say to your friend, uh, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm not that special. He, he would like to have a personal relationship with you, too. Can you believe that? And your friend might say, nah, not me. He wouldn't want to have a personal relationship with me. But you might take him to a chapter like Genesis chapter 18, and you might say to your friend, read this chapter with me, and, and you tell me if you think that God wants to have a personal relationship with you. If you get that far with your unbelieving friend, you've done really good work because that is not easy to do, to, to get that far. Because the world, as you know, is hostile to Christianity and they really don't want to hear our message. They just want to try and take it down. Uh, but that's what we can do when we're talking to unbelievers. But what about us as believers? When we read a chapter like this, do we understand that the God of the universe wants to have a personal relationship with us and, and that it's important to him to have that relationship with us? Uh, he went to incredible lengths to have that relationship with us, and, and he still uh, is, is going to great lengths to have that relationship with us today. And he allows it as we come to him through study of his word uh, and study in prayer. Uh, so we, we ought to value prayer because it's God's gift to us, uh, his, his extension of himself to us so that we can have relationship with him. Well, as we come to Genesis chapter uh, 18, we're going to see uh, how God extends himself uh, to Abraham. And what we're going to see is that uh, God allows Abraham to be his humble host in verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 21, God actually allows Abraham to be his personal confidant. And then finally, in verses 22 to, 23, uh, to 33, we're going to see uh, that, that God uh, allows Abraham to be a fearless prayer warrior uh, in all that he does. So uh, I'm just going to offer a quick word of prayer and then we'll dive into the text. Lord, we thank you for this chapter uh, that, that shows how much you love us and, and how much you care for each one of us and, and how you answer prayer. And that can only happen as a result of a personal relationship that we might have with you, Lord. We thank you for extending yourself to us so that we can know you, because it's only through your efforts that we can know you, Lord. Help us to worship you uh, the way you would want to be worshipped this day. All right, so uh, the first thing we're going to see is Abraham as humble host. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 8. 
Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was still sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring you a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and, and said quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. All right, so what we learn from this is that the first thing is, is Abraham's geography. Uh, he's still at this place called the Oaks of Mamre. We saw him there last in Genesis chapter 13. That's the last time that uh, the author has given uh, Abraham's location. So he's not moved around. He's stayed in this one location while Lot has been down here in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and so the first thing that the narrator says uh, is, is that the Lord came to see him. And Abraham doesn't know this at the time, uh, but this is actually God because the word in the Hebrew is Yahweh. It says the Lord came to see him, the Lord Yahweh. Uh, so though Abraham doesn't know it's the Lord, the narrator wants us to know that it's the Lord. And there are two other men with him as well. And if we were to read as far as uh, Genesis 19 verse 1, we would read that the other two men were angels. Uh, so we know that, the, that it's the Lord and two of his angels, but Abraham doesn't know that at this time. But what he does know is that these are people of special importance uh, because Abraham is a pretty big deal where he lives. Uh, he's a wealthy guy. He's got a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of possessions. And yet you have Abram. He runs to meet them. And then he bows down before them, which is an act of submission and, and supplication. So those two things. Uh, and then he calls them, collectively he calls them, my Lord. Uh, the word for Lord there is not Yahweh, it's Adonai, which in Hebrew is a term which it can be a divine name, but usually it's a term used of respect uh, to somebody who is superior to you. So he's calling him this term, uh, Adonai, my Lord. And then finally, he calls himself your servant. So you see four separate ways that, that uh, Abraham is putting himself under these people, uh, running out uh, to be of service to them. And he actually really does serve them, right? He wants them to have their feet washed. He wants them to rest a bit under the tree. Uh, he wants them to eat. He wants them to be refreshed uh, and, and, to, and to stay a while, to, to hang out with them and, and rest uh, while they're on their journey. Uh, and meanwhile, Abraham is standing there and he's waiting on them while these men sit and while these men are fed uh, this lavish meal that Abraham prepares uh, for them. So. Abraham runs to the tent. Sarah needs three cakes, and he goes and picks a choice calf. Uh, Abraham takes the best of what he's got, and he wants to lavish this meal on, on his visitors because he recognizes that they are special uh, people. And, and, you know, he's, he's really heeding the word of chapter 17 that we saw last week. Do you remember in chapter 17, God said to Abraham, uh, walk before me, and be blameless. 
And this is just one of the ways that we can walk before God and be blameless, right? People come, Abraham doesn't necessarily know who they are, but he's got means, and so he's going to bless these people with whatever he has. He gives them the best of the food he has. He's, got, he's given them way more than three people can possibly eat, uh, but yet he's going to lavish this kind of hospitality uh, on these people. And so it's just a word for us that, that we ought to be hospitable as well. We, we may not have the means of Abraham. We may not be you know, the, the richest guy in the entire region, but we still have things that we can give. Uh, so we're called to minister to people. We're called to serve people. We're called to give people what we have. And, and it really comes out of a mindset of believing that uh, God wants us to serve other people, that we're doing God's work when we serve other people. And so we simply say, what's mine is yours. And you trust God that he's going to replenish what it is that you've given away. And we've certainly seen uh, in, in uh, Genesis that God is, is able to do that. Uh, so he gives this lavish, lavish meal to them. Now, notice that God makes the first move here, right? God is the one who comes to Abraham, and God is the one who allows himself to be served at Abraham's table. And if we're going to know God, God has to make the first move, right? Because who are we? We can only know God to the extent that he reveals himself to us. And so God's incredibly gracious to do that to Abraham here, and, and he's done it to Abraham a number of times so far in Genesis. And he's going to do it a few more times before we're done with Abraham's story. But we also need to recognize that this is what Jesus did when Jesus came to the earth. Jesus made the first move and Jesus came to us and Jesus offered us this salvation that we could never earn on our own. We can only have it by virtue of Jesus's work on the cross. And so, you know, we have this, this quote from John 1:18 that says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is God himself, he has made him known. So it's Jesus coming to us, uh, making the first move toward us to explain to us who God is. And that's an incredibly gracious act. And, and so if we know Jesus, if we know that he died for our sins, if we know that he rose from the dead, and if we put our faith in him, we, we have salvation. But not only that, we can have this kind of relationship with God himself that Abraham enjoyed. And, and so this is our goal, is, is to engage in this kind of fellowship uh, with God like Abraham did. Well, if there was any mystery about who these guests were by the end of these few verses, I think it's going to be cleared up as we read verses 9 through 15. Uh, let's read about Abraham as God's personal confidant as he reveals his plans for the birth of Isaac uh, to Abram. Uh, verses 9 through 15. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There, in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. 
Well, it's not often that God appears to his creatures, right? And, and, and it discloses his plans to them. And, and, you know, so often we wish he would, right? We're, we're really going through it this week. And, we're, and we just want God to come down and say, uh, just hang in there a couple more days. Next week, it's all going to be great again. You know, we would love if God does that for us. But not often does he do that for his creatures. But he does it with Abraham because Abraham is his friend and his confidant. Uh, he treats him as a friend. Well, probably by the end of verse 10, uh, Abraham has a pretty good idea that he's talking to God here because this person who is by him says, you're going to have a son next year. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're 100 years old and your wife's 90. So uh, not normally, you know, your neighbor's not going to come up to you and say, you know, next year your wife is going to have a son, even though you're 100 and your wife is 90. So he's probably got a pretty good idea of who he's dealing with. But, but not only that, uh, God is able to uh, hear Sarah laugh, even though Sarah laughed to herself, and he's able to read Sarah's doubting thoughts, uh, which causes Sarah to get herself in a little bit of trouble. Uh, but, but, but Abraham knows who this is, I think, at this point. And what we see here is the narrator just stacking all these things of impossibility on, on, uh, against Abraham and Sarah. So I want to show it to you like this. Imagine it like a scale. And you have Sarah being old, advanced in age, past childbearing, shall I have pleasure, which means they were probably past the point in their lives where they were having a sexual relationship, my husband being old also. So you have all these things on the impossible side of the scale. But then you come to verse 14, which says, is anything too difficult for the Lord, right? And the scale completely flips, right? What becomes, what's impossible becomes possible because there's nothing too difficult for the Lord. And, and that's, that's the, uh, the thrust of, of that, uh, that verse. So that's a question for us, right? God makes the impossible possible. Do we believe that in our lives? Do we believe that God makes the impossible possible? Uh, we trust God for, for everything, right? Uh, when we think about trusting God, we think about trusting him for our salvation, for our eternity, and it doesn't get any bigger than that, but yet sometimes we forget that we can trust him with our day-to-day, -day, uh, right? I mean, we're going through something right now, and, and uh, can I trust God that he's going to get us through it? Well, if we trust him with our eternity, I think it's safe to say that we can trust him for our day-to-day -day life. Uh, this is the creator of the universe. Uh, think about Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? When, when, when the angel Gabriel visited Mary, she said, uh, how can that be, since I have never been with a man when Gabriel said that she was going to have a son at this time next year? Uh, Sarah had the same uh, idea of this kind of impossibility, uh, and we have the same kind of level of impossibility, too, in our lives, and yet God makes the impossible possible. So think about that when you're, when you're thinking about what you have uh, in your life that is difficult to get through. Well, imagine you're Sarah in the tent, and you have had this thought to yourself, right? Um, can, can I, I'm old, and, and Abraham, he's really old. He's 10 years older than me. He's a fossil. Uh, and is anything too difficult for God? He comes out and says, and, and Sarah's like, yeah, I think something is too difficult for God. Uh, and she gets busted, right? She gets busted thinking these thoughts. And then she lies on top of it because she's afraid of God, which, uh, you know, <laughs> what do you do when, when you get caught by God? Uh, being unfaithful. I, I guess you try to talk your way out of it. And, and God, of course, uh, says, no, but you did laugh. And so he hears everything. He knows everything, even though she's in, be hiding behind a tent and, and thinking to herself. Uh, he hears everything and sees everything that's going on uh, behind that tent. Uh, she's got a small faith. But by the time we get to chapter 21, uh, she's going to know that, that she's got a big God 
because her little faith is going to be changed over to a, a, a person who is going to believe because she is going to bear this son in chapter 21, uh, even though she is going to be 90 years old and Abraham is going to be 100. Well, the men get up from the meal and uh, they're going to journey on uh, towards Sodom. And Abraham is going to escort them part of the way to Sodom. Uh, and we're going to see what happens uh, as Abraham is treated by God as his confidant, revealing his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham as well. So let's read uh, verses 15 through uh, 16 through 22. Uh, let me come back to that one. All right, 16 through 22. Then the men rose up from Sodom or from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abram what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Well, this is where they were. They were, they were this is uh, Jerusalem, and uh, the Oaks of Mamre is probably about 10 miles south of this, but uh, you can look out over this mountainous region, and you can see down towards Sodom, the southern end of the Dead Sea. So on one of these mountaintops, they were probably looking down towards Sodom, and, and Abraham had escorted them that far. And while they're, they're taking this trip, it sounds like God is having a little debate with himself, doesn't it? Like, should I tell Abram? Should I not tell Abram what I'm about to do uh, with him? And so God's having this little personal wrestling match, and, he, and, and then he, he ultimately comes to the, to the decision that he's going to tell him, but, but why? Well, it's because he chose Abraham, right? He chose him, and that's what it says here. Uh, he chose Abraham to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness. Abraham is God's chosen man. He's going to bless the world through Abraham. Uh, and, and how does that happen? Well, it happens just this very way. It happens by teaching your children and, and teaching your household and having your children teach their children. Uh, so Abraham, remember, he doesn't have children of his own yet except for Ishmael. That's all he's got, but he's got a household full of people. And so he's going to teach them to obey the word of the Lord, to keep the way of the Lord, and to do justice and righteousness. And then when Abram has kids of his own, of course, he's going to have so many kids uh, and so many grandkids. Uh, they're all going to learn the way of the Lord because God has trusted Abram and chosen Abram for this task. And so uh, that's how it's going to happen. In our generation, we're charged with the same thing, right? We are required, parents, grandparents, all of us, we teach our children, we teach our grandchildren because the world is blessed through the, the word of the Lord that comes from us and flows down through the generations so that God's blessing pours through us as a conduit through us to our children, to our grandchildren, and as it spreads, the world is blessed. So nothing has changed. God wants to, ch wants to bless the world uh, through Abraham, and we are part of that, that uh, family of blessing, even though it's 4,000 years ago. So 
Don't be afraid to teach your kids. Don't be afraid to teach your grandkids. They may seem reluctant to hear at points in time, but I think that they are listening and I think they hear uh, more than we know sometimes. So uh, be persistent in that. Uh, well, God chose Abraham, so he's going to disclose his plans to Abraham. And so uh, 17 to 19, he's talking to himself, but verses 20 to 21, he's going to talk to Abraham directly. And he says to him that uh, he's, he's heard the outcry and he's going to go down to Sodom uh, and see what's happening there. So this outcry that we get in Sodom, uh, we know from chapter 19 that all kinds of bad things were happening in Sodom, right? We know that they were rapists. We know that they were sodomists. We know they were engaging in, in homosexual activity. Uh, but if we read the prophets and, and other places where Sodom is mentioned, there are, there are other things that Sodom is doing as well. Uh, Sodom is a prosperous city, according to Ezekiel chapter 16. And what they're not doing is, is taking care of the poor and the needy. Uh, they're neglecting them. And, and so you have the wealthy people who seem to be preying on the, the poor people and nobody is caring for the, for the poor. And so it's the outcry not only of the people being victimized by their uh, sexual behavior, but by the fact that they will not take care of these needy people either. Uh, that's the outcry that God is hearing. And so he's going to go down to Sodom uh, and he's going to, hear, he's going to see for himself what is going on. Now, when Lot was looking down towards Sodom, what did he see? Chapter 13, he looked down and he saw that it was well watered everywhere, right? It was a place that, that he thought that he could live a prosperous life. And it turns out that he could live a prosperous life in Sodom. But uh, it comes at a cost, right? Uh, Sodom is, is a wicked place, and Lot had to trade the godly life that he was going to be able to live with Abraham for the worldly life that existed in Sodom, and that's going to come with a price, and the price is, we'll see it next week, the, the destruction and the doom of Sodom. Uh, it's, it's hard to have a foot in both worlds. It's hard to have a foot in the, in the holy, and it's hard to have a foot in the profane at the same time. Uh, the world makes you choose. You're either going to have to choose the worldly, or you got to get out of the worldly completely and get into the holy, uh, because the worldly will, will contaminate somebody who's trying to be holy. So uh, Lot is going to find that out. Uh, he traded the godly for the worldly, and the result next week is going to be catastrophe. Now remember that Abraham is, is he's about to pray for these people. He knows all about these people. Remember in uh, chapter 14, uh, he was captured, or, or Lot and his people were captured by the Babylonian and Assyrian armies, and they were carried all the way north toward Dan. And then Abraham goes up. It's about 175 miles. He walks up there with his armies, and he rescues these people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he walks them back home again. I think you can learn a lot about people on a 175-mile walk through the desert, right? What kind of people they are. Uh, he knows by the time he gets these people home that they're, they're wicked people. Uh, they're not good people. And, and he's got a decision to make here. Uh, he's going to pray for these people of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though he knows they're wicked, because he also knows that there are some righteous ones among them. And he's going to appeal to God's sense of mercy and God's justice as he prays for these people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's look at Abraham as a prayer warrior. Uh, we'll see it in uh, 16, uh, I'm sorry, verses 22 to 33. Then the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. While Abraham was still standing before the Lord, Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. You know, part of having a personal relationship with God is not only praying to, for yourself, but, but you can pray for others. And God wants us to, to have intercessory prayer for other people. He wants us to pray for others. Lot is Abraham's wayward nephew, right? He's his nephew, and, and he's gone off to Sodom, and he's, he's, he's living a life of sin. Now, 2 Peter calls Lot righteous, which is kind of hard to believe, and we'll talk about that some next week. But if he's righteous, that means that he's a believer. And, and even believers can fall into sin and into habitual sin. And it seems that this is what happened to Lot. Because you'll recall that in chapter 13, uh, Lot turned his tent toward Sodom. And then in chapter 14, he's dwelling in Sodom. Uh, and now he's entrenched in Sodom. And in, in the next chapter, we're going to find Lot at the city gate, which is where you find the governors and the rulers of the town. So he's firmly entrenched in Sodom. Uh, and, and so he, Lot is this wayward child, and, and Abraham is going to pray for him. And, you know, prayer is an awful lot. You know, when, 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 when you think about this story, there was nothing that Abraham could do for Lot physically. He could not go and, and rescue him physically, or else he would have. He was able to do it in chapter 14. So the reason he couldn't do it here is because now he's dealing with God. He's not dealing with Babylonian and, and Assyrian armies. God is the one who's going to bring judgment. All Abraham can do is pray, and that's no little thing. Uh, in fact, it's the biggest thing that we can do. So uh, some of us may have wayward kids, wayward grandkids, and, and to pray for them is no little thing. You know, we wish we could do more. We say sometimes, I wish I could do more. All I can do is pray. But that's, that's the wrong attitude if that's the attitude we have about prayer. Prayer is the best thing that we can do. And anything other than that, that's gravy. It's, it's praying that is the thing that we ought to be most thinking about doing. So if you have a wayward child, a wayward niece, nephew, grandchild, don't give up. Abraham prayed persistently, right, relentlessly uh, for Lot. Um, and, and he also prayed for the other righteous people. And so he asks these two rhetorical questions of God, which really get right down to the character of who God is, right? He, he's talking about God's mercy, and he's talking about God's justice. So if you look at, at uh, verse 23, what is the question that he asks? Will you indeed 
sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Well, that speaks to God's mercy, right? I mean, you're going to be merciful, God. Aren't you far be it from you to do something like this, to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Uh, he's talking about his mercy there. And then in verse 25, he, he gets to the question about God's justice. Uh, he asks, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Well, there's a dilemma here, right? If God punishes Sodom and everyone in it, then the innocent are going to perish. And where is God's sense of mercy? But if he lets Sodom go unpunished, then the guilty go free. And where is God's sense of justice? And so you're kind of on the horns of this dilemma here, right? And, and so Abraham decides that he's going to appeal to God's sense of mercy uh, and, and pray for all of these people, even though it may be that some of the, of the wicked go unpunished, at least for now. And so that's what he does. He prays for the righteous, even though the guilty might go unpunished. And, and you see this, uh, this persistent prayer that he asks God. Uh, if you find 50, will you destroy it? God says no. 45, no. 40, no. All the way down to 10 people. Uh, Abraham thinks, that, or is probably relatively confident, that there are going to be 10 righteous people found in this city. Uh, unfortunately, next week we're going to find out that there were not even 10 righteous people found in this city. But uh, Abraham must have thought so because he stopped asking at 10. He probably thought 10 was a, a pretty safe number. Um, next week we're going to see that, that there were very, very few righteous people in uh, Sodom at all. Uh, they were a, a, a wicked, wicked bunch. But here we are at the end of the chapter, and, and Abraham... He goes back to his place, and God departs, and he goes to his place, and we're going to be told that the two men are going to go on towards Sodom. And so uh, we're left with this cliffhanger. Like, uh, I don't know if you, if you guys watched Batman in the 70s. At the end of the Batman show, there would be like, uh, you know, when, when the story didn't finish, it would be, come back next week, same bat time, same bat channel, to see if Bruce Wayne or, or Batman will get out of this horrible predicament that the penguin or whoever has put him in, right? Uh, that's where we are this week. What's going to happen to Sodom? Uh, will Sodom be destroyed? Will 10 righteous people be found? Uh, will Lot be found righteous? Uh, who's going to escape from this judgment that is coming? Uh, I'm going to have to save the answers to those questions for next week for Genesis chapter 19. Uh, but for now, I just want to think about some of the things that we can learn uh, from this chapter because I think there's a lot here. And the first thing I want us to, to think about is that God wants intimate fellowship with us and he always makes the first move. Um, God came to Abraham, right? Abraham's just hanging out at his tent at the Oaks of Mamre when here comes God and two angels walking around the corner uh, and Abraham sees them there. So Abraham would have had no knowledge of God being there if God had not made the first move. And then he, he sits down at his table and he allows himself to be ministered to uh, and gradually he lets Abraham, Abraham know that he's actually speaking to God here. Uh, and so, was God hungry? Was God thirsty? Was God tired? Uh, did God need refreshment? Uh, does God need fellowship with us to be complete? Well, no. I mean, the answer to all of those questions is no. But God offers himself to us as an incredible act of grace because he knows that he is the greatest thing that he can give to us, right? Uh, he knows he's the greatest thing in all the universe, and if we have him, we have all that we need. Now, is that arrogant of God to say that? Is that arrogant of God to think that? Well, 
No. I mean, if you're God and you know that everybody needs you, then it's an incredible act of grace for him to give himself to you. Now, if I stood up here and I said, you all need me, and I'm going to offer myself to you, uh, and, and that's going to be an act of grace, right? And you would say, you'd stone me, right? <laughs> you'd say, uh, no, that's not how it is. It would be arrogant of me and stupid of me, but not with God. God gives the best that there is, and the best there is is God. Uh, so he wants this act of, of fellowship with us, and he wants us to take advantage of it. And so the question is, how? How do we take advantage of this? Well, that brings me to my second application. The greater your investment in God, the greater your return will be. Like any relationship, you have to invest time in it, right? You have to share your thoughts uh, with the person you want to have a relationship with. You have to take risks with that person. You have to share with them things that you might necessarily not want the whole world to know. Uh, but that's what you do when you're deepening your relationship with somebody. And so... Uh, in, in these verses, we see like this increased progression uh, of intimacy and fellowship between God and Abraham, and the relationship deepens. Uh, in, the, in verse 1, God reveals himself to Abraham. In verses 2 and 3, uh, Abraham welcomes him, which results in fellowship in verses 4 through 8, uh, and service. And, and so God trusts Abraham enough with the revelation that he's going to give him about uh, what he's going to do with the birth of Isaac and with Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he tells Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, he's inviting prayer. He wants Abraham to pray for these people of Sodom and Gomorrah, which Abraham does. He accepts that invitation, and then God grants the prayer. He says, I will not destroy it on, this, on account of the ten. And so you have this uh, relationship developing of intimacy as you invest time in God. And so we can have that same level of intimacy too. And so we, we need to spend time with God. We spend time with him in prayer. We spend time with him reading our Bibles. We spend time with him fellowshipping with other Christians and, and, and encouraging other Christians. Uh, we spend time in service, helping the people who have need. We spend time in prayer for other people. Uh, this, this week in Houston is a, is a great example. We should be praying uh, very much for these people in Houston who have lost so much. And, and God answers, he answers prayer. So we ought to come to him boldly and persistently. And we can have the same relationship uh, with him uh, if we do. James says that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so we as righteous people, not righteous always in our conduct, but righteous believers, saints, because we have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, that is a righteous man, and the prayer of a righteous man uh, avails much. So God will, will bless your prayers, and you'll enjoy increased uh, sense of fellowship and intimacy with him as you invest in that relationship with him. And then finally, God loves mercy over judgment. Abraham asked it perfectly, right? Shall not the God of the earth deal justly? Well, of course he will. I mean, he's the God of the earth. He's perfect in all he does. Of course he's going to deal justly uh, with his people on the earth. Uh, God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He's able to judge the wicked, and he's going to do that next week in chapter 19, but he's not going to lose these, these righteous uh, with the wicked. You know, our own lives are proof that God prefers mercy over judgment, right? I mean, we all deserve judgment, but what do we get? Because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have trusted him as our Savior, we get mercy, even though it's justice that we deserve. Uh, so 
just a little snapshot this week of, of God and his personal relationship with Abraham and, and how he wanted to have this personal relationship with him and he wants to have the same relationship with us. He allowed Abraham to be his humble host. He allowed Abraham to be his personal confidant and he allowed Abraham uh, to be a fearless prayer warrior. And if he'll do that for Abraham, he'll do that for us as well. So I just want to you know, thank God and praise God as we go out for here and just think about how great our God is that, that this God of the universe would want to enjoy a relationship like that with people like us.